0: Are you ready to realize the true potential in your life and help others do the same? Get equipped to create a thriving future with the Secrets of Success podcast. Inspire others to live, lead, and work on purpose, and experience the joy of watching satisfaction and productivity come to life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, welcome,
1: SOS listeners, to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, today's guest, Dr. James Kelly, is phenomenal. He had actually his own podcast for several years. He's just retired from that Uh, professor, living in Dubai, born in the U.S., but uh, his show really has a lot of insights about leadership, but also his journey. And my encouragement to you is that when we think about these special events in life, that can change our entire direction so when you're listening to the podcast James really shares a situation an incident an occurrence that happened that changed the the entire trajectory of his life and so all of us have those if we recognize that or not and it's an important piece for us to consider as we think about going forward now one of the things that James talks about in the show and we'll get into it in a second is the critical importance of self-awareness well one of the things that CRG does as well as anybody else in the world is help you in the area of self mastery so if you have not really looked at the tools the assessments to enrich yourself to get clear about what your strengths are your personal style or personality your values your self-worth your stress your leadership skills if you're in education you're learning an instructional style all of those are there for you to create this self-awareness so that you can act on it. And James's research and his experience, and now as a professor, is teaching that -- is that without self-awareness, it is not possible. So my encouragement is think about that. And uh, just as a transition, you know you can go to CRGleader.com and find out more about the tools or contact us directly. But enjoy today's show with Dr. James Kelly. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, today we have a very special guest who is halfway around the world. Uh, It's breakfast here in Vancouver, it is dinner time in a place called Dubai, and I think most of you have heard of it. Our guest is an expert on leadership, he's written the book The Crucible's Gift. Welcome to the show, Dr. James Kelly. James, thanks for being with us.
0: Dr. Ken, thank you for having me on the show.
1: Well, uh, you know, we had a sort of preamble before we got into recording, and as we do with many uh, of our guests, we just like to hear about your journey and your background, and we'll find out in a moment why you're in Dubai, Uh, but... uh, (laughs) James, where were, you know, where were you born? Where did you hang out? And then we'll get into this whole area of leadership and development and why important, it's important to everybody as Yeah, sure. Forward. So thanks for the opportunity.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for the opportunity. So yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a guy that grew up on the Pacific Northwest uh, in Portland, Oregon. I had three, two and a half, it's a longer story, but two and a half older, two and a half uh, siblings older than myself. The closest one was about five years. And then the next one was seven, and there was one in the middle there and six who we adopted when he started high school. And uh, we grew up in a small 900-square-foot home with one bath. Uh, The only saving grace is that we all swam and played water polo, so we were out of the house most mornings. So there was never a traffic jam at the bathroom (laughs) for the most part. Um, And, you know, I, I joke a lot about this, but I grew up in a house that was Irish Catholic uh, with a touch of violence minus all the Catholicism, but I got all the guilt. So uh, it was an interesting way to grow up. You know, my mom is Canadian. She's from Toronto, and my dad is a Presbyterian from, uh, I think, Colorado or somewhere in the middle of the country, to be honest with you. Um, Well, that's that's
1: the heritage of my grandparents,
0: Presbyterian. Ah,
1: So there we go. Yeah.
0: So, so, I mean, that's, that's the general, I mean, please ask questions. You know, it's so hard for me to say what's, what's interesting, what's not interesting to you. So that's kind of the essence in, uh, of my, of my childhood, you know, at the end now, of the day. Now what did your parents
1: do? What, what were sort of the, yeah, of your folks? It's,
0: it's funny. This is one of these things where you know, I think many of us have vivid memories of different parts of our childhood. Mine have mostly negative memories, unfortunately. However, uh, my mom was a bank manager and for a solid 15 years, all I remember remembers at dinner time her complaining about her work and how much she hated it. Mm. Uh, and that was seared on my mind completely. Um, my dad was a very quiet individual, though his physical presence was quite intimidating. He was, I don't know, six foot, 5'11", 5'10", uh, 250 pounds, give or take. Wow. Um, and he he grew up baling hay in the summer with the old iron hooks, so mm-hmm. he had forearms like Popeye, a belly like a beer guzzler, though he didn't drink ironically much, and um he was freakishly strong so so it was an interesting combination, yeah, oh never ever i was I was a buck twenty wet growing up in my high school years um and so my mom was a bank manager, super unhappy. That steered my brain. My dad worked for a chemical company doing inside sales and eventually moved up a bit before he passed away at 49. Mm. And, um, and, uh, yeah, and so I was 20, I was 20. It was definitely one of those formative moments in your life where, uh, the wheels in the bus wobble and then fall off and then sparks fly out as you're on the ground just trying to go. Yeah, I got that. And so I, I was junior year of college, and I remember there's another vivid moment. I was at my then-girlfriend's apartment at Western Oregon University visiting, and I went to University of Dayton in Ohio. And so I went to go visit her down in Monmouth, and then we walked into her dorm room, and I can vividly remember the room at walk-in. And uh, on the left was a bunk bed as you walk in. Straight ahead was a desk. On the right were two dressers. Uh, and the bathroom was down the hallway, and the phone rang, and it was a family friend saying that my dad passed away. He had, he had and, and, you know, and then obviously, I kind of black out, essentially. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I remember falling to the ground, and then I remember being in a car heading back up to Portland, which was about an hour and a bit, to to go to their house, while well, my mom and dad actually had moved to Georgia at this point, mm-hmm. um, right after I graduated high school. And they would be flying, my mom would be flying back to my dad in the casket like two, three days later. Um, but it was it was one of those moments where you can remember the exact place, the exact space, the visuality, and then I blacked out. And, and the, you know, the irony of this and the, and the timing of this conversation is actually quite, uh, I guess, timely. Just based on the whole, in America, the Supreme Court issue that happened last week with Dr. Ford describing trauma and then blacking out, but remembering specific things, it really spoke to me. That Mm -hmm. trauma isn't nearly the same, but the idea of something so traumatic where your mind only remembers certain aspects, but it's so Mm -hmm. vivid, and you just forget a lot of other stuff for a while. That's that's really what happened to me as well. Wow. Wow. Now, how did that impact
1: you in in terms of emotionally afterwards? What what sort of changes or shifts occurred in you as a result of your dad passing so young?
0: Yeah. So I, I chuckle because I was a complete mess. Um, uh, as I described earlier, the wheels in the bus wobbled and then there were sparks because it was on the ground. That lasted for probably a solid four years. Um, I ended up you know, getting a new girlfriend in college. And if it probably wasn't for her, I would have most likely failed out of college. She, Went to the library all the time, and I just wanted to be near her. I wanted to be near somebody, and so I would just spend a lot of time there with her.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I wasn't a great studier, but it was enough to make sure that I passed all my classes. And so I, I struggled, and you know, and I think I think one of the realities of that situation is that a you know I'm a young man, uh, I'm living in a house with six other guys who, you know, the the worst thing that's ever happened to them is a hangnail, and you know, a bad night drinking, and so they can't relate to this moment. Uh, and so I very much, you know, swallowed a lot of pain and had to, I had to cope. And so my drinking went from maybe a two night a week thing to a four night a week thing. And you know, it went from if I have a test the next day, well, I'll start drinking as soon as I'm done studying, but I rush the studying to go drinking. And so it was just a way for me to cope. Mm-hmm. And, and and unfortunately, you know, I I had some. Once I once I once I snapped, I snapped, you know. It, I didn't fight or get in, you know. I didn't beat people up or any of that stuff. But I was definitely a screamer. I was out of control, definitely belligerent, um, and so it, it impacted me. And I had no one to talk to, you know. I was on an island, you know. Two years later, for example, I was I was driving my mom. My mom had moved from Atlanta back to Portland after my dad passed away. And, uh, and, and ironically, my mom did not learn to drive until she was 50. So right after my dad passed away, which is a whole other <laughs> interesting story. A whole story. other story, I'm sure. <laughs> it, yeah. Um, and so I'm 22, and my mom tells me she wants to kill herself. She's depressed. So, you know, what do you do with that at 22? You can't go to your mom and tell her you're sad and depressed when she's already there. Mm-hmm. And you know, my mom did not commit suicide, um, but but she was in a really dark place, as you would expect after her spouse of 20 years passes away. Mm-hmm. And and so I had nowhere to turn. You know, I had no one to talk to. I wasn't particularly close with my siblings, uh, and and so you just do what you you have to do. And I don't. There's no right or wrong way to mourn. It's it's what mm-hmm. and how best suits you I mean there are books out there that tell you how to do it but the reality is, is that you have to figure out for yourself you have to allow yourself to do it and I did uh, and I had another mishap happen when I was 24 that kind of forced me to because I was open to the opportunity to reflect uh, on the process, process of my dad dying so it, was, it did impact me quite. and even now like, I, you know, I just finished reading a book by this woman called Julie Beekman called Two Trees, and it's her memoir, and I probably got teary-eyed or cried two or three times in this book when she's describing her childhood and all the trauma she had, and it just made me feel the the rawness of that emotion that's still there inside you.
1: Mm, Yeah. It's real. It's there. I get it. I understand it. I won't share my story and take it away from you, but thank you for uh, sharing that insight and being vulnerable, uh, James. Now, with I'm that, vulnerable. James, and, and not to shift and be uh, not be sensitive, what were you taking in university? What, what direction had mm. you chosen?
0: <laughs> yeah, I didn't. That was my struggle, right? So this is per- my perpetual curse in life because I'm curious about everything but focused on nothing. So uh, I started off college undecided. I, I, I literally barely got into university, barely. Uh, I only got in because I played sports. And so I had to take remedial math, remedial reading. My sophomore year, I think I moved to education. They said, uh, so I left college after my freshman year, to be honest with you. I left college um, and I went back to Portland with, with the then girlfriend and I sold new and used cars for a year. Wow. So so at 19, I'm selling new, new and used cars and brand new uh, Chevrolets at uh, a local dealership. And I was quite proud. I got salesperson of the month um, when I was 19 years old, which is, which is pretty good, I think, yes, 19 at a dealership. Um, I think it's just because I didn't, I didn't look like I was trying to screw anybody. I was, I was a young, innocent-looking 19-year-old kid. Um, and so at college, you know, I never had the confidence, and I never had the ability, I never had the purpose. I didn't know why I was there, and I think a lot of young men, and women for that matter, Mm -hmm. now that I teach in higher ed, struggle with that. They absolutely struggle with what their focus is, and I was no different. So I bounced around. I was a math major. I was an education major, uh, and then by the second semester of my junior year, they pulled me aside and said, you need to pick something, And I said, uh, what do I have the most credits in? And all they thought is, how can we get this kid out of here? And so I ended up doing a broadcasting major. So I graduated broadcasting with a minor in marketing. And then I immediately moved to Chicago and worked on a master's on what was called media management at Columbia College. But I only lasted a semester. Hang on, James. Yeah. I barely
1: get into university. I don't study. I don't like university, and then immediately you go to do a master's.
0: Yeah, no, I know. It's Help stupid. me out. Help me out. Help <laughs> so me levels. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing. So what I did know is the safety of education, mm. right? Like I understand that social construct and how to operate in that. And so, uh, the jobs that I was applying for right after college, I for some reason I had ego and I have literally no idea why I didn't think the offers I was getting was what I was worth. And so I thought, well, I'll just go on and get another master's, you know, and, and I started it and I was doing quite well in the program, but I was in Chicago. Uh, I was also working 50, 60 hours a week to survive. What were you doing? uh oh, geez. I was, I was a bouncer. I was a personal trainer at a gym. Um, I, Did like just odd and in jobs like whatever I could find, I was doing it. Um, I I remember I had a roommate. I remember there was there was a period of about three weeks between checks where I went and bought a box of instant mashed potatoes and tortillas and I had and cheese and that was my breakfast, lunch, and dinner for about three weeks. That's all I could afford.
1: Yeah. Very very healthy. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah. <laughs> the level of starch that I consumed during that time is unbelievable. Um and so, you know, I um and so after second semester, my mom had essentially lost her job. She was in her fifties, product of ageism, in my opinion. Mm. And so she was running low on cash and so I decided to leave Chicago because I was tired of being broke and I took a job opening up the forty first office of a national advertising agency. I, I have literally no idea how I got the job. I didn't deserve it. I wasn't qualified for it, but I sure talked a good game. And so mm-hmm. uh, the, the the boss decided that, uh, you know, this 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 kid could do it. So I opened it up, and then I was there for about a year and a half back in Portland, and then moved to San Jose uh, and took off another, uh, worked at another company trying to save their office, and then I, I essentially got fired. They say it was laid off, but I could read between the lines, um, after about five months, four months. But you know, I was hired under a, pro, a false promise, false pretense. And mm. so that, that just kind of didn't sit well with me. And, and I think the, the, <laughs> the, the, uh, I don't know what the the proper analogy is, but the egg that tipped over the bucket that got the apples, whatever. I don't know. But, um, I ended up, I don't know if you remember back in the late 90s, like this is like 99, 2000 at this point, when you got an email with a link on it, you knew you probably shouldn't have clicked on it, but you were curious mm-hmm. enough you would click on it. Do you remember that? I don't know if that ever happened to you or yeah, not. Sort but of.
1: I still remember when emails were 21-digit numbers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> before they, I'm dating myself now. Before they even actually had names. Well, I don't know if mm-hmm. you remember that or not. But okay, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, so you clicked on a account. link
0: and... And I I basically created a virus that shut all 22 offices down, or whatever it was, the office count. So (laughs) they realized it was me, and within three weeks I was laid off or slash fired, uh, if you will. But that was a blessing in disguise. The company sucked, and to be be frank, this is a great example of poor, poor corporate culture. We went to a national meeting, and all of us managers, again, there was like 22 offices, 23 offices, something like that we all stayed at a nice three-star resort while the CEO and the executive team stayed down the street at a five-star hotel. Mm. So think about that from a cultural perspective when you are basically being told you're not worth as much as we are.
1: Isn't that that happening? It still happens, doesn't it?
0: It does, and I think it's unfortunate and it's disgusting because when you tell someone they're not worth something they aren't going to work hard for you. And, it's not, and beyond that, it's just disrespectful at the end of the day. Mm. Um, we all put our pants on the same way. So uh, that didn't sit well with me. So when I, got, when I got fired, laid off, whatever you want to call it, I was fine with that. Um, and I spent the summer teaching. It was actually, Did you ever watch Seinfeld? A, a little bit, yes. Okay. But brilliantly well, there was written. an episode. What was that?
1: Brilliantly written.
0: Yes, yes. There there was an episode where George lost his job and he called it the Summer of George. And so he just, you know, slept in and did whatever he wanted to do. That was my summer. So I taught swim lessons in an outdoor pool to little kids and adults. And at the same place, I painted their gym walls for the whole summer. I would hike every day uh, in San Jose in the mountain foothills with my dog. And it was the most relaxed two and a half, three months of my whole entire life. I I pine for that day, those days, so bad sometimes <laughs> of just no stress.
1: The, you know, the it was simplicity. amazing.
0: The love of simplicity. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. So that that's kind of the the gist of of that. And so you you finish that summer, then what? Yeah. Well, I my my journey keeps going. I um I go off to get my MBA in New York. And so I leave the West Coast, go to the East Coast, and now, wh- I thought that how, I wanted. How are you
1: choosing all these places, James? You mean you you go to Chicago, you go down to uh,
0: San yeah, Jose, you move <laughs> over to New York. Uh,
1: um, how do you even so discover Chicago, these? Why why these places?
0: So Chicago, all of my college roommates, most of them were from there, so they all moved there afterwards, and I thought it'd be fun to be near them. Um, Portland, obviously, my mom was there again, and then San Jose. Um, I just thought it'd be cool to live someplace that's a lot sunnier than Portland, which is a guy Fair from enough. Vancouver. You can appreciate that. Yeah.
1: I get it. Um,
0: yeah. And then New York was just an opportunity for me to get into coaching water polo. And so um, I went out there, they were starting a program and I was going to be like the associate head coach. There was going to be a head coach, but, but she didn't know anything about water polo. And since that was my background, I was going to essentially run the day to day. So I did that for, for two years And, um, in in the middle of the second year, I took a team of men, uh, collegiate men to Australia. And I just, that was my first time going abroad and I was hooked. I was hooked. Um, I thought it was amazing. And, and so, uh, I went from, from New York to Tokyo and I, uh, taught English for a year in Tokyo. So I'm about Mm. 30 at this point. And, and I, this is such a funny story. And in, in, in retrospect, I remember when I turned 30, and I, and I called my mom in the middle of Tokyo in a phone booth. Uh, they had those then. <laughs> this was like 2000, 2002 or three. I can't remember. And I was crying in the phone booth because I was I was drunk when I called my mom, but I was crying in the phone booth. And I was sad because I was 30 and I didn't have a real job and I didn't know where I was going and what I was doing. And as my mom would do in that moment, she goes, shut up, stop whining. You'll be fine. Go to sleep. She hung up on me. And I was like, wow, I was that, like, that's a lot of empathy. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, that's not my mom's strong suit. But uh, uh, I went, okay. And I just hung up the phone and, and like Charlie Browned at home and uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> went home. and Woke up the next day and I was like, all right. So uh, I went from there uh, back to Portland for a year. And at that time, I was like, really, I was really struggling. Like, what am I going to do? Because, again, I don't – I have an MBA now, but it's not from a prestigious school. It's from a, it's from an okay school, a liberal arts college. But I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I started applying for the Peace Corps. I thought that would be really fun to give back. Interesting experience. And then I – at the same time, I had this – this crazy experience, which gave me the confidence to go for my PhD, and so I was at, down at Portland State at an event for the for potential Peace Corps uh, people, and so the presentation da da da, and I was hanging out, and after everyone left, uh, three or four PhD students came to sit down and talk to the woman who helped that that um, ran the meeting, and they were from Africa. And we were talking world politics and Africa and monetary policy. And, and I, was, I was holding my own. And I thought, huh. In my mind, I think like many people's minds, they assume that if you have a PhD, you have to be the smartest person in the class. And you have to have been top marks. And I can't speak for you, Ken. You may have very well been. Uh, I, I was not. Mm. But what I found is that I was smart enough. But I never felt that before in my life. I never felt like I could be the smart person, the intellectual in the room. And that, to me, was one of the most profound moments in my life. And without that moment, there is no way I go to get my Ph.D. And I would have definitely gone to the Peace Corps, which would have equally been awesome, don't get me wrong, but it would have been a drastically different path than I had taken. Isn't it interesting? Uh,
1: and, I just want to stop you there, James, and yeah, to the yeah. listeners as we go through this. A uh, similar situation for me where one single in event in your life changed your entire trajectory. Isn't that amazing? What was yours? Just, what was yours? I went for uh, a, a chamber luncheon and met the founder of Consulting Resource Group, which is the company I own now. And if I never have met him, I might never have. Now I've been the owner of the company for 15 years and connected to it for 28. So uh, awesome. he was best man at my wedding, um, mentored me, <laughs> gave me the encouragement to do my MBA. So that's the person there that said, oh, yeah, you could do yeah. it. Because my grade nine English teacher said I couldn't amount to anything because I uh, and I read that. Yeah, and so this Brilliant. English English teacher, so she was from Britain, said, you know, you can't, you just <sighs> same thing as you, just saying, okay. Yeah. I always knew that I was going to be a communicator in doing things like this doing a podcast. This is not work. Come on, yeah. I've got this yeah. awesome guest, uh, Doctor James Kelly. We're having a conversation. Are you kidding? So, I mean, my encouragement to everybody else listening is is what James is sharing here is pay attention to those little nuances as well as just wow you know you talk about that moment where you paid attention to it now from that from that
0: event said you know what wait I can, I though, really, can i ask you a yeah. question cuz i'm really curious can i ask you a question cuz i'm super curious <laughs> so sure. so cuz I, I think those moments like i'm always curious when people have those moments and someone says they can't do something how much of that did you believe and how, how how long of an impact did that have how how long did that hold you back
1: uh, 15 years.
0: Wow. From grade 9 to 30, ish Actually, lived isn't that You're
1: almost maybe closer to 20 years.
0: Isn't that amazing, the power of one person has over you? Mm. And I guess it was
1: just at that, I mean, I'm going back when there was no computers, right? So mm. writing was all handwriting. There was no uh, auto-correct in your texting, sure. in your... So I, I just had to kind of live with it. Even my first degree, there was no computers. I hand-wrote every paper. So I had a dictionary beside me looking up every word, uh, struggling with it, grammar. You know, I really don't care. But I mean, I've written you know, four books and four million words a copy. But, yeah, you're right, where I think people underestimate the power of their words both ways. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons we have this podcast is hopefully encourage people through a story, through a sequence of events to say, okay, here's James. And by the way, my wife works as an academic coach at university. Your story is not Mm. unique at all about people trying to filter through and say, why am I here? I mean, that's our work around personal purpose is this discovery process and that you were fortunate enough to find a path. I'm sure there were others that you could excel at, but you found a path that you were excited about. So, Thank you for sharing that. So you met these individuals and you said, well, I'm going to do my PhD. So what did you do then?
0: So uh, one of my criteria, I uh, had a couple criteria. One, uh, I am atrocious at uh, standardized tests. I have high anxiety because I feel like it's an intellectual test mm-hmm. of your capability, which it is, um, which is a fair reason to have that. Um, right. So I, the first thing I did is I actually looked for schools outside of America, I wanted to not only go abroad, but I wanted to find places that didn't put a weight in one exam to say if you could or could not do something. I know it's supposed to be an aptitude if you, could, if you can do the work and all that, and I understand that, um, and I can appreciate that process. I don't think it's universal for everybody, and I think I'm the exception to that. So I looked around the world, and the first place I looked was Ireland and, and England for a PhD, and I thought, man, I don't really want to go to the rain. So, so then I moved, then I moved to Spain and I thought, okay, I just finished trying to learn Japanese. I don't know if I have the space to learn another language in my brain. And so from there I moved to Australia and in Australia they have what's called the group of eight, which is their Ivy league schools. And so I applied to the university of Western Australia in Perth, which is a top 100 university now and their PhD program. Actually it started off as a DBA program. And then I moved over to their PhD program after I got my masters in research there. And I ended up graduating um, with a PhD in international consumer behavior, ironically. And that's what I teach now. I mean, you know, I moved to Philadelphia after that in two thousand nine, and I was in Philadelphia for seven years. In the meantime, I got married in two 2000- thousand Nine or ten? I want to say nine. Maybe eight. Two thousand eight. My wife would kill me for this right now. Yeah, of course. Uh, I'm, I'm sending this. Yeah, I think I got. YouTuber. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, two thousand we just had our we just had our ten year. Okay, so we got married in two thousand eight, and now I have four beautiful kids, ranging from ages ten down to three. Mm. And so
1: you're teaching at the uh, in Philadelphia. United
0: Arab. Yeah, it's called United Arab Emirates University. It's the largest federal institution. It's the first federal institution, higher education institution in the Middle East. And it, they just recently got ranked as a top 350 university across the world. So they're not well-known, but they're not, they're not an awful school. So they do, they do pretty well here.
1: Mm. So you were in the U.S., but then how did you get to Dubai?
0: <laughs> so, uh, it, you know, I think, I, think, um, I think you'd appreciate this, Ken. Um, I, I, in my life, which probably makes sense of the title of my book, I've had multiple failures in my life from a career perspective. And so in Philadelphia as an academic, you know, if your audience doesn't know this, after, after six years, you, you go up for promotion, five years, sorry, you go up for promotion to get a lifetime appointment. It's like being a Supreme Court judge at a university. You're there forever. It's called tenure. And so... Yeah, it's tenure, um, and, and to be fair, I don't believe in it. Uh, in the, in, from, the aspect, from the aspect of saying that you never have to be tested again, right? I think yeah. that that's a false premise, uh, and many people after tenure check out and are completely useless. But you can't fire them, so I think that's a false that's a false conclusion to getting tenure. So, and it is going away slowly. It's, it's going away to the point of saying every three to five years, you have to prove your worth again to, to make sure. And I think that's fair. I think that's fair. So, um, so I went on for tenure. I did not get it. Uh, I was, I was short, basically one publication. And so at the same time, one of my really good friends from my PhD program was working at this institution and just said, Hey, listen, there's good opportunities here. There's lots of Financial stability, if you if you do it a certain way, and so forth and so on. And so through converse, conversations with my wife, and in the the current, this is 2016. The current environment around multiculturalism in the states, uh, I, and and even people who are for multiculturalism actually didn't know how to partake in multiculturalism, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. I really wanted my children to be able to gain an invaluable experience of being in a classroom with kids from literally every part of the world. So my son is in class with students from the the Emirates Emiratis with Egyptians, Jordanians, with Nigerians, with British, with Irish, with other Americans, um, with some Australians and that's his world. And there's, there's no better lesson in tolerance than to be in a group of people from around the world because whether they know it or not, my daughter who's eight, same situation, they are, they are learning the differences between cultures. But more importantly and most importantly, they're learning the similarities between cultures, which I hope through the guidance of my wife and I we teach them that that's more important than differences. Not Seeing what's different is easy. Finding what's similar is what's bonding and connecting. And, and that's what we're hoping they're getting out of this experience.
1: Mm, mm. Well, thank you for that, James. So, James, you know, for the second half of the show, and so you were here in Dubai, what, what are you teaching? Are you teaching consumer?
0: Yeah, so I know I'm like this weird... I'm like a triangle in a square hole. So when I started my PhD, ironically, I started off actually in leadership. Uh, But my advisor left, and so I didn't want to leave the school, and so I moved over to marketing. That's kind of how I ended up there. But right now I teach consumer behavior, principles of marketing, um, strategy classes, things like that. I love consumer behavior because it's really marketing in a... it's, It's really, sorry, it's really psychology in a marketing context. So, you know, today I was talking about learning, how consumers learn using uh, you know classical conditioning and operant conditioning so you know positive negative reinforcement you know, we'll talk about memory systems next class so for me it's psychology but in the business school which is fun for me
1: mm. so here's this person who really hated school barely made through it <laughs> and now a professor well, oh you, uh, you you really smell take the irony here would you say yeah. that your students that you have empathy for your students and you're one of these uh, professors that is approachable versus some of the other ones who are not? Yeah, so I'm
0: totally approachable, but but what i what I do say to my students is don't allow your excuses to be your reason for failure. So I'm keenly aware where I slipped up in my confidence in my abilities, so I spend a lot of time talking to my students about, about soft skills, about personal characteristics. Um, you know, this, this culture here is very unique. Um, it is very difficult sometimes. And I'll give you a great example. One of my ex-students, I ran into her yesterday, and she had an internship. And she was lamenting about how bad it is. Like, well, what, what's the worst thing about it? And she says to me, they made me clean the storage closet, And I've never cleaned anything before in my life. So what? that kind of gives, gives you a sense of the culture here. And, and the reason that is is that everybody has a maid. Everybody, yeah, everyone has a maid. And if you're Emirati, you probably have a maid and a driver and a gardener. Mm-hmm at your house cause it's affordable at the end of the day. That's the reason why. And so, um, many of the Emiratis from a cultural perspective, and that's what I teach predominantly is Emiratis, um, really struggle with adversity. You know, they, they don't know what that means and what it's about mm. because I mean, good for them. They've had an easy life. You know, they've been fortunate enough to have an easy life for the most part. Um, so, yeah, I forget what your question was. Sorry, Ken. Well, I
1: forget it now too, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, I was so I was I was just I was envisioning this girl cleaning this closet and just complaining yeah. and said, "Okay,, uh, suck it up, Princess is what I was thinking. so and no, that
0: uh, and that's, that's, that's kind of what I said to her too. I was like, if this is the worst thing that's ever happened to you, you've had an amazing life, and you should appreciate that a little bit." <laughs>
1: Well, there's that whole area of entitlement and even the millennials in you know, North America. And I don't want to... I'm actually father of two millennials, so I have to be careful here.
0: But um, just... Wait, know, wait. Let's, let, let, they, let, go ahead. Wait, I just wrote an article about this, right, for a, for a business journal about millennials. And the argument is that it's not their fault. And, and this is... You can totally kick this to the curb if you want, Ken. This could be a great debate. The, the reason why I say it's not their fault is that they're a product of the social construct that was created by technology. And how can we blame them that the world they were, that they're being raised in, their worth is accredited to likes, shares, and follows. So of course, if that's the social construct that they know, they're going to take that into the workplace when they first get there. Just like, you know, uh, I don't know how old you are, Ken. I'm going to guess you're close to me, maybe late 40s. No, I'm a little
1: older. You can add 10 to that.
0: Okay. We're going to go early 50s. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so, like, when you think about the social environment you were raised in, for me, it was, started to be the TV in every house or every room. Right. And so that then started to fracture the family and how we communicated and where we ate dinner. And, you know, that was the social environment. So when I moved on to college or getting married – I would constantly want to eat in front of a TV. My wife's like, no, we got to sit at the table, you know, which I'm fine with that. Like that's totally the right mm-hmm. thing to do. But the point is that's the social environment I was raised in um, was to be kind of by myself. That's the social construct. So the millennials, that's their social construct. This is my argument that they were raised in. So many of us blame them for wanting attention and attaboys and feedback all the time, but that's what they got all the time. That's what they get all the time. social media that that's my argument I don't know if it's valid or not though
1: well it certainly is a contributor the other one uh, I wrote an article about parenting the one job you never have to apply to get and (laughs) just how how uh, poor because I used to be a school board chair and my wife's a teacher by profession how poor many of the uh, parents are out there as far as you know building guidelines guardrails framework for their kids and in some cases the TV was the babysitter and so they just acquiesced to that and then the fracture of the family to more single parent environments so it was really maybe not a necessity but it was one of the ways to kind of manage everything and so I get that Uh, you know around our place because our kids had like eight or nine sort of surrogate grandparents who were you know now in their 70s 80s and 90s well, they there's no way they had a chance. <laughs> yeah. So, but we saw that we were the village grew them up, and they're amazing kids. I mean, I'm biased, but you know, people yeah. come around us is where they pay attention because they were gifted with sort of this grandparent culture around them. But I digress. Now, awesome. I do want to. That's we awesome. only have a a few minutes left in the show, and James, I definitely want to get into the highlights of your book, The Crucible's Gift. Sure. What you did about it, how they can find out more about you, but we'll get that to the end of the show. So, the Crucibles Gift, your book, just uh, give us sort of a, the sure. the highlight version of what uh, caused you to write it, and and then let's get into the content of it.
0: So, so the, the quick um, bridge that needs to be made is that I used to have a podcast called The Executives Hours. Um, a Leadership's Perspective, or Executive hours, so executives After Hours. God, I've already forgotten the name of it, which I concluded in August. And so I spent three years and uh, almost 200 episodes interviewing executives around the world, similar to you, Ken. So I was really curious about their moments of adversity, so where they were raised, what formed them, how it happened. And so I took 140 of those interviews, and I transcribed them. And in that transcription, I started to see themes that came out. And so, you know, the book, The Crucible's Gift, Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders that Thrive in Adversity, really comes from the idea of these leaders that I saw that were super successful but had other traits beyond that. And so the easiest way to describe my book really is to describe the framework. And so if you can envision a bullseye with three circles, right, you have one in the middle, Mm -hmm. one right outside that, and then a third one. You know, in the middle, what I found is that leaders—leaders who really understood their crucible crucible moments, their adversity moments—it really starts with that. You know, for you, Ken, it really started all the way back when you were in ninth grade and your English teacher told you you couldn't do it. That was one of your critical moments in your life, I bet, that -hmm. put you on a particular path. And only in hindsight, when you pull that apart, did you start to grow from that and learn from that. And so that's the starting point for so many leaders and their leadership styles, and what happens from that is when you move to the second ring from the outside, the leaders that really embrace their crucible really delved into developing their self-awareness, and as you know, that's really the hardest thing to get leaders to understand, and there is a, there's a movement uh, in certain leadership circles that are really focusing on what they call the heat or the crucible moments and how those can forge better leaders, and so they get to this leadership and then, or this crucible moment. They develop their self-awareness. If you move out to the third circle, it's divided into three parts. And we're going to come back to that second circle in a second. But what I found is that leaders that embraced their crucible, grew their self-awareness, awareness were actually more compassionate, mm-hmm. not only towards those in the workplace, but also for themselves. They realized that their adversity is something that, that they need to reflect on and be kinder to themselves about, but more importantly, they're able to connect with those in the organizations that are going through something similar, mm-hmm. which then leads to you know, a second part of that outside circle or ring is that they also then, based on their crucible, started being more honest, more transparent, you know, living with more integrity. What they realize is that, that they wished, depending on their adversity, obviously, they wished that the other people around them were more transparent or honest and, and dealt with them in a better, fairer way. But the third part of that outside ring, which is really important, is that they valued relationships more, which is what I call relatableness. And it's a philosophy they had to create micro-moments of meaning with those next to them or around them. And so what micro-moments of meaning really means is that for me and for the leaders I interviewed, you know, they have a thousand interactions a day but they pride themselves in, in, in a majority of those, those 15 second to one minute interval conversations, they pride themselves on being present, listening with intent and leading the other person with a smile. And the reason why that's important is from a psychological standpoint is that it actually leaves a positive marker on their brain. It's a neuron that fires and creates a relationship between that person and a positive moment. And that's impactful because that can actually spread in an organization like a virus. But if the we
1: go back is also to. also true,
0: isn't it, uh, James? Totally. Totally true. Um, but if we go back to the second ring where self awareness is, on the bottom half of that, this, is the, this was to me the icing on the cake: is that none of that other stuff mattered. None of it. Self awareness, compassion, integrity, relatableness. If the leader did not have a growth mindset or a learning mindset, because without that learning mindset, they aren't able to develop their self-awareness. They're not able to actually be more compassionate or live with more integrity because they don't know that something's wrong. They don't get it. They don't see the value in it. And so the leaders that I interviewed, some were stronger in relatableness, some were stronger in compassion, but they all had aspects of this, what I called the authentic leadership model. Um, they all had aspects of it. And it just kind of uh, stood out to me as I was doing my research.
1: Well, I mean, all the research around resilience, uh, et cetera, et cetera, is learning is important. And actually, yeah. growth mindset is what my wife teaches to her students as an academic coach. Oh, that's coach. awesome. As an academic coach is that that is what's going to get you through to the other side. Are you growth mindset or not? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I appreciate that. And, of course, our space, what we believe we're really good at as a company is this whole area of self-awareness and how yeah. critical and how important it is Yet yeah. It seems like, um, even though it's talked about so much, James, there's not maybe as many people as self-aware as we'd like. What do you think is one of the yeah. reasons
0: for that? I was going to ask you the same question. You know, I think we can go, I'd love to hear your side on this too. I think for me, one of the biggest things that I saw is that the leaders that had some sort of mindfulness practice and, and any, any way you want to talk, spirituality, religion, present, um, you know, belief, they had a much better ability to unpack and be self-aware. But those that went a thousand miles an hour uh, or in Canadian vernacular, a thousand kilometers an hour, yeah, well, they're uh, They, they, <laughs> they didn't, they don't have the ability to pause. Without the pause, there's no reflection. Without the reflection, there's no growth in self-awareness. Mm. And, for me, that was the biggest indicator. Um, what I'm curious from your perspective is how do you – what do you do to help people develop their self-awareness? Well,
1: you asked the reason – or you asked the question first, two reasons, uh, and we usually cite a couple of them. But one of them is – first one is for certain leaders, it's hubris or ego or arrogance. yeah. Uh, yeah. Just like you, uh, your company culture, being the five-star, you guys are in the three-star. I remember doing a program for a Fortune 100 company, uh, the VP who brought me in for this very expensive deal. Uh, he didn't do all his pre-work, and so he, he left the program. So I'm too busy. I said, what? what are you talking about? And then the other one around self-awareness is it, it takes a intentionality. And yeah. most people are not willing to take the time to sort of invest in themselves. And, you know, I know Marshall Goldsmith personally, and he said a lot of times, one of the most difficult thing in the leadership space is mm. just openness to feedback. And, yeah. and Jim Cousa is a, is a quality uh, colleague as well. And he said, you know, getting feedback about what am I really, really doing? So people aren't even conscious that they're unconscious in there and so so that is that sh- that shift james is really okay how can and you know what it is a vulnerable place i don't like 360 feedback just because i teach it doesn't mean i like it because you put yourself out there where yeah you you know i grew up in a home that was extremely critical you know we're t- there was no affirmations that were going on in our home it was just that's yeah. how my parents Grew up from an Eastern European uh, descent point of view. So I get that where you're trying to nurture. I see what you're saying in your model, the difference that those of you that are listening, you know, that James's model says, you know, at every moment you are having impact with those people. So I, you know, I can't Mm -hmm. make you want to develop, but can I even frame for you the importance of developing self and this whole self awareness? And even Newsweek had mindfulness on the front cover last month. So it's there, meaning am I paying yeah. attention
0: uh, to it? In, and that's it's, hard,
1: it's right? Oh, certainly it is.
0: Yeah. And, and that's the thing, you know, um, uh, quick, quick, I don't know if you knew this or not, but Marshall actually endorsed my book uh, as well. So, uh, but, but, uh, He's
1: awesome. I mean, he, he yeah. did that
0: for uh, one of our
1: books as well. And it's just who he is, right? He, he gives yeah. back to the community and he's just awesome that way. So, uh, that yeah. was very nice of uh, Marshall to do for both of us. So there's a plug yeah. for Marshall. He, he just retired um, from coaching. He just retired from coaching. I saw
0: that. Yeah, I saw that. Um, he's had a good run. So I uh, yeah, think for that. sure. For sure. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I think the self-awareness thing is really interesting. When I, when I talk with leaders, you know, this is where I think you and I are very similar, Ken, where I actually think that you can't change the past, but for me to understand your autobiographical I have to interview you. I have to understand maybe some of your triggers in life so I can ask the right questions Mm. to allow you to maybe be a little bit more self-reflective and maybe jog your memory and jog a reason of why you act a certain way. You know, maybe you're overly defensive. Well, what, you know, why, you know, and, and what happens when you are, and what's the outcome of that for yourself and for the other people, you know? And, and for me, the autobiographical helps me understand that individual, that leader, from the standpoint of giving them exercises or opportunities to reflect on that moment. You know, but I know there's some people out there who, in the leadership space, that totally don't want you to go back to the past. They don't care. You can't change it. It is what it is, uh, and you just need to accept it. And, and I do think there's a level of truth for that. Uh, you know, one of the one of the, one of the things that I think is really impactful is this concept and, and you're probably familiar with it, called appreciative inquiry. Yeah. Um, and, Go ahead and I share think with the audience that, what it is. So appreciative, appreciative inquiry in, in a summary formation here is really a strength based approach by asking strength based questions. So often in life, most consultants look for what's wrong. They go into an organization, they talk to you, and this is where you're broken. This is where we need to fix you, whether it's organizationally or whether it's individually. And what, what appreciative inquiry really does is it says, let's, let's find some examples of excellence in your life. Moments where you, if, if maybe you struggle with relationships or struggle with compassion, let's find moments where you were compassionate and what was happening then. Okay, let's dissect that. Now, how can we bring that forward to to now? How can we use those moments of excellence to create momentum of excellence? And you do it through questions. You don't do it through – you just do it through questions. Questions makes the other person be reflective. It makes them be uh, stoic in the process. And and it allows them to come to their own conclusions, which is really important for buy-in as well. Um, and so I think Appreciative Inquiry, which, is, which was created by Dr. David uh, Kupenreiter out of Case Western Reserve, uh, is a super impactful way. There's actually a book by Jackie Stravos, and I cannot remember her co-author, so I apologize, but it's called Conversations Worth Having. It just came out this year. Uh, it's a great, simple, impactful, and practical book using Appreciative Inquiry. Uh, and, and the examples she has are really, really useful that you can use. So, great example, simple example is this idea called flipping. So, flip the script essentially. So, Ken, you and I are talking, and, and you say something like, um, uh, "You know, I have this client, and they just nag." What I could do is say, "Oh, well, when they're not nagging, what's the best part of your conversation?" All right, so. I'm, I'm not allowing you to take me to a negative place and I'm changing the question and asking a positive reframing of that question for you to think about it positively, mm. right? Oh, well when she doesn't nag, she's, she's, she's present and she got a good night's sleep and okay, great. So maybe next time you work with her, why don't you, why don't you flag that for her that I love our conversations when you have a great night's sleep and you're fully fed or whatever, right? I'm making this up as I go. But the point is, is that you're flipping this to figure out when that conversation, that interaction was at its best. And that allows you to focus on that and then to inform the person you're talking to or working with that that is when it works best for you too as well. I don't know if that makes sense or not.
1: No, absolutely, absolutely. Well, even, even Marshall has this feed forward process, mm. right? Moving forward, what mm-hmm. do you want me to do versus what do you want me to stop doing, which is the feedback, model Yeah and I do believe in interviews if I'm doing coaching that we find out okay what did they do well and what could they do better mm-hmm. and then we just go through I go through that process in our um, in our uh, assessments that we do we said you know uh, developing your weaknesses are highly overrated It's kind of, and it's it's a play on words just to say, okay, I have strengths. Yes, I need to understand my weaknesses and, you know, if I'm not good with people and I'm the CEO and that's really not okay, but how do I manage that and how do I play to my strengths and where does that energy come from? And that's where, you know, when we think about self-awareness, a lot of times people beat themselves up for what they're not versus really playing to what they are. And then the other one is is really the whole side of holistic stuff. So we get into health and wellness, and if you're not sleeping and mm-hmm. you're eating poorly, if whatever, that's going to affect your ability to interact and have patience and all those kinds of things as well. Now, we mm-hmm. only have about four or five minutes left, James. So before we get any further in getting through your last comments, how can people find out about you and,
0: and or get the book? Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. So um, you can find out about me at, at uh, www. Doctor D R James Kelly K E L L E Y. Though I was savvy enough to buy the one without the second E, so you can do either. Um, and uh, you can get my book, my blogs, my vlogs. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm doing large group facilitations, a little bit of individual coaching on the side. You know, what I'm finding, people in America are a little bit apprehensive about contacting me. So just keep me on your radar, because I will be back in the states. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the next hopefully 12 months. Uh, it it uh, definitely has been a killer for my book being all the way over here because <laughs> I haven't been able to speak. Um, but nonetheless, that's the best way you get hold of me. You can buy the book on Amazon, Kindle, and an audio version will be coming out sometime later this year mm-hmm. um, as well uh, with the book. So,
1: yeah. Well, thank you for that. So it's the website for the book is the Crucible's Gift, right? So yeah, yeah either not, either one. Sorry, either here.
0: one would work. Yeah, right. sorry. You might as well um, buy from you
1: directly, or <laughs> I'm sure fulfillment is happening here. So, James, you've been yeah. absolutely delightful. So when we think about you know leadership, and one of the things that you did in your work was just around character traits and integrity and this sort of resilience. Anything you want to list leave with the listeners is. You know, It's just a final point of wisdom Mm. to encourage listeners to go to the next level who maybe might be confused or maybe want to be a better leader that you haven't already shared or just synopsis of what you've shared.
0: Yeah, thanks for that. You know, uh, I hate getting on a soapbox, but I'll I'll jump on it gladly at this point. Uh, I think leadership sometimes, the, the word is overrated because we're all leaders in our own life. It's the choices you make in that role that have a direct impact on you. And often for many people, the role that fear plays is actually the one that, that challenges you to, to really get to your full potential. And so there's a, there's a phrase that I like to say is don't let fear conquer you, conquer fear. And I'm not talking about fear of jumping off a cliff. Yeah, that's, that's good fear. Use that, be, be careful of doing that. But I'm talking about the fear, the emotional fear that that we often have of stepping up when we need to step up, saying something when we should say something, or doing the activity or changing the job, or taking on the role of leadership that we might think that we cannot do. Um, I, I often find that you know our own skeletons inhibit us from being a better person. But I think once you embrace those, you let let the fear subside or challenge the fear or lean into the fear. It really changes you as a person, as a leader, as a husband, as a wife. Um, And and I think it's very powerful when you start to take control over your destiny. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, James.
1: And James, thank you for taking the time, you know, from your dinner hour to join us.
0: No, thank you for your time, energy and willingness to have me on your show. Are you kidding me? Okay, stay there, James. So, SOS listeners, thank you very much
1: for being here. Uh, taking your most valuable commodity in time, take all the things that James has talked about, and pay attention to your self-awareness. You know, your adversity, uh, the things that have happened in your life, they can be used as a positive tool to have a growth mindset, and really apply and to share. And as James has said, you know, relationships matter. And what would people say about you? Would they be positive comments that you leave a positive impact when you interact, or would it be something different? Well, as always, we thank you for listening. Please share if you like what we're doing. Leave a positive comment. And I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keys.